Putting up new buildings, we're knocking down the old. We're working in the summer heat and in the winter cold. And the labour power we sell, me boys, for a hard and weekly pay. Produces mighty profits for the greedy MBA. And whether we were born here or born in Italy, in Greece, in Spain or Ireland, in England or Fiji, we all of us are workers united we must stand until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land. Welcome to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews with the people who made the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. These podcasts are sponsored by the Concrete Gang in cooperation with Community Radio 3CR. And break a couple of concrete pores to back our lug of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. Our builder's labour is a name to make a man feel proud. And welcome to Creatures of the Industry and our guest today... Dave Karen, good morning, David. Good morning, Ralph. And uh, we're going to uh, have a chat about your time in the industry and perhaps a little bit of your time out of the industry. <laughs> Not always by choice. Yes. Now, you came into the industry when and how? So, I, uh, there, there are a couple of um, prongs to that story. One was... Um, uh, I was uh, I became involved in the late 60s in the anti-Vietnam War movement. My brother was in the army and went to Vietnam and came home. Thank thank goodness. Um, I was studying by correspondence, and uh, uh, one of the subjects I was doing was Southeast Asian studies. So we studied about China and and uh, India and and Vietnam. So my eyes began to open about what was happening there. And I started attending the rallies and, and eventually the moratorium. And there was always the presence of unions there. And the, the construction unions especially really impressed me in, with their involvement in the war. And they, they, were, they were courageous. They, were, they spoke the truth simply. And they were inclusive. They always invited you in. And uh, so I was really impressed with that. And then I had a mate who worked mainly in the country. He was a carpenter. John Barker, and Johnny did a lot of overpass work in the country. So I started, left, left the job in, in uh, the Rising Sun Hotel in West Footscray, where mum and dad worked, and, um, and I went, went with John and started to get introduced to, to, uh, to the building industry, um, albeit on a small scale. So the first job I then worked on was uh, in town was with... Uh, Ray Wynn Stanley was the delegate uh, down in um, Lonsdale Street. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> I was a raw kid, literally a raw kid. But, uh, and the boss said to me on, one day on a concrete pour, he said, now I want you to take these buckets, these two buckets. And he said, and, uh, when the skip goes up, I want you to fill the buckets and run them up the top. Uh, right up. So <laughs> off I go. 
Off I go, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm running upstairs like I'm running, and and I did it for half a day, at everyone's amusement, and Ray, 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 when Stanley pulled me aside, he said, he said, son, he said, I thought you would have conked by now. He said, so I'm really impressed. Come with me. <laughs> so then my uh, my education began, but um, yeah. So uh, and and uh, yeah, and then I don't know. We go where the questions lead us, I suppose. But then I ran into people, ultimately like uh, like uh, Cole Williamson, and uh, and others, and me, and Johnny Lowe, and Johnny Cleary, and we all end up in a, in a rank and file group because of the you know all of the goings on with inside the union between Mundy and Norm and all that. But uh, so and uh, we will touch on that a little yeah, bit yeah. without getting uh, too yeah, entrenched in it. But uh, at this stage. What would you say your basic skills were in terms of the industry? Look, you know, just... Uh, you could run a marathon. Yeah, concrete. I, I was fit. <laughs> I was fit. Does help. But, uh, you know, no, look, I... I, um, I, I yeah, I guess that, you know, I was a, I was a labourer. I eventually became a really proud builder's labourer. Um, I scaffolded a bit. Uh, you know, Big Ben and Cyclone and up until the... The big struggle around the first six days, and then after that, um, we were all sacked, and the the contract gangs were put together. Um, after that blew, uh, so I sort of found it harder and harder to, to get work. But uh, but yeah, they were they were my things. I I, I loved general labouring, um, and, and still do. I was lucky enough to spend the last two years of my working life back in the industry, which was just heavenly for me. Um, yeah, so uh, Sean Reed. And what sort done. of jobs did you work on back then? Which year, and what years were they? Um, so uh, in the countryside, overpass work and you know sheep runs, and <laughs> that was from about the end of 1970 to about end of 71, 72, and then I was in the city. Mm. Yeah, and, and and getting getting work where I could, and as I say, that got narrowed off because of internal politics. But I was on 500. Collins, a big job there with a lot of scaffold work going on, um, and a, again, working alongside some of those scaffolders was such a like you know, Irish and English and Welsh, and um, a lot of them had come over uh, with long histories and stories in the union movements for their own country, and sit there with my mouth open listening to those stories. Um, but I was also a kid and thought I knew everything too, so that was. Uh, I had to learn the hard way that I didn't. <laughs> so you uh, shared a few of your thoughts and uh, yeah. they put you back in they, your place. They put me back in my place. But, but you know what? They, they do it with an arm around your shoulder. They, do, they did. And they, uh, they, they, you know, they, 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 they pushed me up, for instance, to be on that, that organising committee for the sick, sick, the sick day struggle. Um, so that, that way of treating a younger person, you know, to sort of... You know, you don't want to crush them. You want them to be to be confident and out there, and uh, but but you want to teach them as well. And yeah. so I was lucky that I ran into the scaffolders because that scaffolders monthly meeting was, um, you know, that was a pleasure to attend. And, yeah, and did have its moments of excitement too. I might add, but yeah, it did. <laughs> it did. But but again, you know, they were used to the politics from their own countries, and they had a lot of wisdom around not falling out and. You know, have your disagreements, but don't make it existential. <laughs> you know, like. yeah. So 
In terms of the scaffold, that would have been still a lot of tube and fit, but uh, very much modular yep. at that stage. St- yes, uh, a lot of, as you say, a lot of tube and fitting are still in the industry um, uh, and heroes there, you know, like, um, oh, my memory, Ralph, uh, you know, the great Fitzroy player. Uh, Kevin Murray. Kevin Murray, you know, and I'll never forget actually seeing him do the one-arm thing with a, with a, a 30-foot tube, yeah. you know, and throwing it in the air, sorry, listeners, throwing it in the air and catching it. And then pushing it up the next increment. Oh, just uh, <coughs> incredible. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, so, um, and worked on Monsanto. Uh, first tower I ever worked on was Monsanto Tower, and that was an experience, you know, because it's round, And f- if you can get a picture of this listening. But when you scaffold on a round surface like that, you, you're just out there. And it's, uh, so that was, a, that was an amazing experience. And learning how to do that properly and safely and... Now, straight away, I'm noting that you didn't just work on high-rise. You've done a bit in the civil, you've done a bit in metal engineering construction. Monsanto was a, uh, a fairly uh, well-known site. Mm. And were you there when Parsons were... I was just coming in to do maintenance stuff oh, on, on the Oh, just doing maintenance, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, with a gang, and I think that was... Would have been one of the one of the last jobs I was able to work on. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the committee that the contract scaffolders had formed to uh, push their uh, own interest, mm. but certainly in the knowledge that it was going to have a flow-on effect. So how did that come about? Mm. How did you fit in and? Where did it go to? Mm. So uh, the scaffolders meeting initially, of course, was when uh, was organised when everybody worked for the company directly for the scaffold company, um, and and so, and so it, just for people's understanding, worked for the scaffold company. That is the owner yeah. of the company that owns the scaffold. It not only hires out the scaffold, it also hires out the crew to erect the scaffold. That, that, that was normal business that's right. back in the 60s and 70s. Early 70s. And, and uh, so, you know, Big Ben, Cyclone, etc. So when then, I think 1974, uh, that blue happened about the first six days in the industry, um, I'd, I'd come into the scaffolders meeting... And I met people like Cole Williamson, um, you know, Lurch, as some people called him, and, and others, which was then my introduction into the rank and file group, but another story. And, uh, yeah, so when that blue came up and they were looking around for younger ones who might, you know, go on the organising committee of it, um, I was pushed up and, and fostered um, because it's difficult for people now to if they didn't live through it, to, to, to understand what, what it was like in the, in the industry at the time because the industry in the union for, for us was the same thing. And, uh, you know, the culture of the union was, 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 was rich and it was, it was a, a rich political culture, but it was a very divisive and factionalised culture too. And as a young man coming into the middle of that, you didn't know where to put your feet. 
So basically I went with the ones who weren't that keen on punching me. Um, and the ones who were, I tend to see as a bit of a problem. <laughs> I don't know why, but call me dumb. But anyway, so... Uh, so I was pushed up. You on hang that. around with those you'd have a drink with. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. And we'd all drink in the, in the curtain after those branch meetings. So they were a, they were a, an interesting old affair. But but um, so there was a, I think it was roughly ten week uh, strike, and we had pickets on the gates of the, the scaffold companies. Um, Norm at the time was trying to move forward with a with a more um, unified agreement across the industry, which ultimately became the VBIA, the Victorian Building Industry Agreement, um, as I remember. And, uh, again, people like me, young, bull at a gate, didn't quite understand those older, maybe wiser blokes and their intention. But, anyway, we decided as a scaffold group we, we were going to go for these sick days. And we, we shut... Eventually the industry ground to a halt because of that... And couldn't get the scaffold. So, um, and there were some really, you know, awkward situations developed there on some of the pickets. Anyway, we come back, we won. Normie had come over about a week before us winning and said we'd gone too far and we're on our own. He stormed out of the meeting and about a week later we won. And then as a result of that, Norm, it was close to Christmas, must have been, and Norm put me on that Christmas shutdown thing with um, Paddy... Um, Ah, oh, lovely Irish tenor voice. Um, I'll think of it in a moment. And um, and uh, so I was travelling around with Paddy, and 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 that that's the thing I was going to say before. When there are a lot of the the students who would come in and out of the industry over their breaks and, and earn a quid and back to study, and uh, you know um, people like uh, Boydie and Brian Boyd and and uh, uh, Dan Dan Hillier and. Uh, and, and they were because they had they shared the same politics as the leadership, so they were fostered and they were trained. It was wonderful, really. I mean, they were trained really well, and they went out into the front line. Th- those of us who were on the other side of the sort of Monday Gallagher debate, for want of a better way of phrasing it, um, we, we weren't. And when we were seen on a job, we were invariably sacked. So <laughs> that was just the, the way of the industry. Um, and in the end, you know, we had kids and things like that. You had to work. So I worked across a number of different industries, in and out of different mm. jobs, shunting and all sorts of different jobs over the over the decades. But always tried to come back in and and, and come back into the industry. And I, and I did another story, but I did around about 84. I came back, I met with Norm, and it was clear where things were headed. And so anyway, but we'll maybe get into that later if you Yep, yep. I'm just interested in what your memories are of the industry as it functioned. Already you've, you've had a couple of them. Uh, the, the scaffold game was a tough old game and unfortunately, whereas people had been hired directly by the owners of the scaffold who contracted direct to the builders, it subbied out. That's right. We all got sacked after that blue. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And they went to subby. Yeah. And uh, so <clears throat> the late and great uh, Bone went from being uh, a boss for Big Ben to being his own boss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people like that, in, in fact, employed a lot of the scaffolders who were considered to be problems. Persona non grata, yep. yep. And uh, that went on for quite some time. It did settle down and... The new regime, in terms of how 
work was organised in the scaffold game, changed where everyone was accommodated. Yes. And a lot of people who hadn't worked for a long time worked again. That's right. But in terms of the industry, in terms of the sites you'd gone to as a labourer but then as a scaffolder, how do you think the industry was at that point in time? As rough and ready as people remember it or was it a bit more mixed than that? Uh, well, it was rough and ready and mixed. It was, yeah. It, it was uh, yeah, I mean, well, technologically for a start, mm. a lot of the, you know, things were only really just starting to go up um, mm. as we know it today. Yeah. Um, uh, with all of the problems that that then uh, uh, led to, but also the technological advances that that led to. Um, um, and, yeah, but, but I, I remember it as, as, as a far more manual, hands-on industry. Um, and, and I guess with all of the OH&S problems around it, the, you know, the problems with asbestos and... Um, and mesotheliomia and silicosis and the fact that the job started going higher meant that the foundations went deeper and, and, you know, in a lot of places, New South Wales especially, that led to the outbreak of the silicosis and, and so forth. So, um, yeah, no, I, I, I remember then the technologies coming in, the scissor lifts and, and, uh, and some of the divisive stuff that that led to. Um, but, yeah... Uh, for, for me, it was uh, I, I was always um, in the process of trying to get a start. Really, I tried on a lot of different jobs, but by the time you'd distributed the newsletter uh, often enough, people well, could know your face, and yeah. So <laughs> we've got to it, haven't we? We've got to the activist group that was formed, uh, which was very much reflective of the New South Wales view mm-hmm. of where the BLF should be. Mm-hmm. And you can personalise it and say it's the Jack Mundy view, but it was a bit more than Jack Mundy. It was, it was. So how did you see those developments in New South Wales and how did you contrast them to how things were in Victoria? Mm. So uh, for, for me, when you uh, went to New South Wales and you experienced the, uh, the meetings and the interaction with communities... Um, the level of engagement with the migrant communities because our industry was around about 85% migrant worker, like direct migrant worker, not second or third generation sons of, but direct migrant worker. And so witnessing the, the translators at meetings, witnessing the, uh, like everything we bought out in Victoria, we always tried to have in three, four other languages. Um, um, and the the... The, the, the engagement with shop stewards, the you know you went into the office and it was it was open, um, which sometimes led to problems. Of course, blokes were half cut and coming in, but but the the the, the education that happened, the political education, uh, for me as a young bloke, I mean I I would stand and in wonder and just I couldn't believe it. For me, it was like, um, yeah, it, it, it was. Uh, you know, it, it, it was a, a bit of a vision of what a of what a different world could be, uh, where people were fully engaged in the decisions that affected them. And um, years later, I found out the word for that. Um, <laughs> in my seventies now, I can't remember. But uh, 
Anyway, uh, uh, so in Victoria, because of the fallout, um, I saw and experienced different things. You know, mm. um, you know, you, uh, in, you know, including some push and shove at meetings and stuff like that, getting getting um, a few slaps around the head. But um, half of me thinks these days I partially deserved it. But but at any rate. Um, uh, so they were two different visions. <laughs> One that said, well, you will agree with me, otherwise you, there'll be a penalty. And the other saying, we can have a world where we are open and inclusive uh, and still get things done uh, militantly. Um, and, uh, uh, and and I guess it, it provided a vision within which the day-to-day union work could, could be done because it was important that wages and conditions advance and safety advance and things like that and, and in many ways Victoria was ahead of New South Wales in relation to that um, but 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 what were we doing it for was the question and and I know for people these days that might seem really abstract but um, for us there was a different political milieu Vietnam was raging our brothers were involved in it literally in, in many cases um, we, we, we had decided we were going to come out and what? Actually support the other side to win. I mean, it was a fairly... My family split down the middle. We did, I didn't communicate with my old man until the last 12 months of his life, basically. So these things were real to us um, and it was connected to our unionism. The anti-apartheid struggle, I remember in 1971 and the BLF involved in that and getting the big police bat and cracked my uh, little pinhead open and and... and, and we were doing this as unionists, and and you know the, 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 what it didn't just start and end where the where the construction site gate did. Um, indigenous, we found out we actually had indigenous nations living in this country, and we were treating them, you know, uh, really really badly. And and there was a whole history of that. And so we started. So our minds were being blown on a number of fronts. Northern Ireland, of course, and many of us began to learn the history of our own families in in relation to that. So these were like it was history, yes if I look back at it now, but it was very personal as well, you know, and, and then so when people who were political leaders fell out, they were falling out. I mean, their families were intermarried. They they went to each other's funerals. They, you know, I mean, they were a community. And when they fell out, boy, that, to come into the middle of that, you know, you, you, it was like a, a fast-played tennis match. You were just, your head was going from side to side. So all you could do was go on your own experience of it. How was I experiencing this? And if someone was trying to punch you in the head because you asked a question, you thought, well, one, get learn to fight, and two, um, you know, uh, uh, there's got to be another way of doing this. And, uh, and, and because of all that stuff, we had the intervention happen in New South Wales, what, roughly nine years later, Normie gets set up and then the, the, the big, de, the fair income deregistration, because the first one happened in 74, but we rode that out and the numbers in Victoria at least actually increased. Um, but, but because of the intervention in, to New South Wales, which flowed from that 1974 de um, about nine years later, bang, we get hit with the big deregistration. We all end up on the same side as Normie in that because it was the same issues, the same things, same questions were being asked of us. And although we'd had these massive differences and a lot of pain that we inflicted on each other in the 1970s, in the 1980s, um, we lost friends again because we had to stick with what we saw was right and a lot of people who had trouble with what Normie did in the 70s wiped us. So, you know, it, yeah, it's... Um, anyway, I'm getting out beyond the bounds of the question. 
That's fine because what we're doing is reflecting, I think, in this conversation so far, the industry as it was experienced. Yes. Not everyone experienced everything the same. No. And clearly um, there was political fallings out. Mm. Norm belonged to one political party and Jack Mundy belonged to another political party and they were in competition. Mm. And that had adverse effects on a lot of people, both in the union and outside the union. But maybe, you know... Okay, Sarah, Sarah, what will be will be. And out of all of it came a very um, active union membership mm. who were involved in everything. Yep. Everything, as we listeners to this uh, podcast will have heard, everything from establishing and setting up and basically maintaining 3CR, mm. community radio. Yep from 1976 all the way through to I can remember being on a job where Johnny Lowe brought round uh, some people from South Africa to talk about apartheid. And we stopped work for the best part of two hours after Smoko, Mm. never during Smoko, um, after Smoko to actually listen to these people talking about what was happening in South Africa in the early 1980s. Yes. Yes. And really, that, to me, demonstrates a very, very different industry from perhaps what we have today. I think you're right, Ralph, yes. We have a much bigger industry today, but is it as vital, is it as educative mm. as what it was in those days? Mm. Mm. It was, I think you're right, a rough old, rough old way to learn, but you did learn. You, did. you learned a lot of stuff and you met a lot of people. Uh, absolutely, and, and they were life-changing lessons. I mean, I remember us setting up the Palestine-Australia Solidarity Committee, PASC, 1973. Now, a number of things flowed for us in, in setting that up um, because, of course, the nature of the Palestinian cause brought you in straight smack up against the Holocaust and its ramifications. We... we in a sense, didn't know what we were getting ourselves into, but we soon found out. And uh, so, well, one, one, uh, one uh, uh, result for, for me, again, personal political, was I had a, a close friend, Max Wexler, who, uh, because we'd set up the PASC, I found out later, became an agent in our ranks. He was not became, he was an agent in our ranks. And uh, uh, Max was Czechoslovak. Um, we were told that uh, Asia was after him and the KGB were after him and we put him in households. I lived with him for mm. a couple of years. We'd move him because the house would get raided and turned over. This is the times. Um, Max then comes on Current Affair one night, one of the early shows of Current Affair, with that Willisie blood. And there he is in a suit and dark glasses and he's talking about all of us as terrorists. Now, we know now from the work of people like Philip Deary, who wrote Spies and Sparrows, uh, came out just a few years ago, I think. Uh, Philip's book, there's a whole chapter on Max. And the reason Max was put in was because of Palestine. Mm. And then, um, likewise, 
Labor Party membership, 1972, little pinhead again, I'm in there. We we get kicked out of the party and the pro-Israeli group gets brought in, about 70 of them, outvote us and expel us. Mm. Um, why? Well, because of the, the PASC, the Palestine side. So our politics was shaping events and we, in turn, were being shaped by the events and some of those forces we didn't even understand. I guess, so that just to reiterate your thing, that, that these were alive issues, the politics around them were real, it wasn't like some, you know, student-left politics, these were real issues, people were living and dying in these struggles. We took sides in those struggles because we believe that's part of union action, the strong must defend the weak. The strong must defend the weak. And um, and in that, those involvements we became enculturated and that's, yeah. But of course this then leads to another point of difference mm. where people say, well... That's an indulgence. What happens in the villages of the third world isn't uh, our issue. We're selling our labour. We've got to get a better deal. Mm. Now, <clears throat> put it to you that that isn't actually in conflict. I agree. And doing the basics, looking after wages and conditions and people's health and safety and, and so on, mm. they're not exclusive. No. How... At that same time that you're talking about in terms of the politics, mm-hmm. which was obviously an all-consuming um, activity, you were still trying to work. Yeah. And so how did you find the industrial struggle during the 70s and into the early 80s at the same time as you were quite clearly very active in a whole lot of political issues? How did you find... The, the, gra- the grassroots at work. Mm. Well, many times I didn't. I was out. I was uh, not, either not hired or when I was spotted I was sacked. But uh, along with many others, Lowy, Johnny Cleary. That's how Johnny became a sparky in the end. He studied night school because he couldn't get work as a labourer. Um, but, but I guess for me the, one of the important lessons was, and, it's, and it is around this question of unity, because, of course... At the same time as Norm was doing things that I didn't appreciate and people like me and more so Jack Mundy and leaders like that were doing things that he didn't appreciate, um, both sides were doing really good things. I mean, Normie, he took labourers in this country from being, you know, pack animals to proud, self-determining union members uh, and especially the migrant workforce... Um, so when that Eureka flag went up finally over the, over the, the construction sites, what, what it signalled was that the job, you know, uh, that the migrant workers were seen, at least formally in our union, as equal to any other, you know, Anglo-Celtic member who was sixth generation, that the, the mobile brothels would be driven off the job where women, women couldn't be raffled on a Friday night, that those sort of things happened under that Eureka flag. Um, so Normie was responsible for that, and he went on, even when he was making other mistakes, to make major contri- contributions. And that was a big learning thing for me, learning that, you know, because I've done it often enough where I've been wrong or a, and or an arsehole, but I've done some good things. My intentions were to do good things, and then sometimes I did them. Um, and I think that's true of all of us. And, and I think for unions and how we deal with difference, that, that, that that's pretty... That's a... 
a big realisation and it's hard to see when you're young and the blood's up um, because you think, oh, I just get rid of these people, everything will change. But, you see, that implies that this is somehow personal. Our problems are somehow related to the particular individual involved, but they're not. They're systemic, of course, and you learn that through life. So treating each other, you know, better and not... Uh, not seeing each other as an enemy, not falling for that, I think is is absolutely and utterly crucial to the rebuilding of the union movement. Very, very uh, generous of you, given that you actually had a resolution passed that you were an arsehole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a formally so. Formally, it was a funny story. But I, I, the last on-site magazine, which was our rank-and-file grip magazine, I was distributing it around the city jobs, 1976, and... Um, um, and I went. I hit Colin's place, so I'm putting it around the lunchrooms, and then I start hearing noises from from below me and above me. <laughs> where are these <laughs> journals coming? Where is this on-site? Where are these? Who's doing this? So they start searching for for little Georgie Despard and his his gang, and uh, and then uh, the the some of the carpenters on the job didn't like it either because. We had wrongly, and because we culturally weren't as aware, we'd referred to uh, the language as Yugoslav. Um, and so I had two groups chasing me around the job. Well, I could hear them, and one is, there he is, <laughs> I'm off-ski. And I'm down the stairs, I bolted out onto uh, Collins Street, and I'm tearing down the road, and behind me there's this massive blue going on with hammers and bricks. <laughs> anyway, the next branch meeting, it was formally moved and second and passed... That I was a yes, it was worse than an asshole, but let's leave it at that. So I think on the books it still remains. I still am. <laughs> so those who want to check this story out, you can go to the Melbourne University archives where the uh, minute books. Nineteen seventy six. Yeah, it should reflect the fact that. Or it might be in the Butland collection at ANZ, <laughs> or ANU, I should say. Uh, anyway, out of all of this. What do you think were the major breakthroughs for building workers, not just builders, labourers, because whoever led the charge meant that other people could join the charge? And uh, what do you think the major outcomes were in the 1970s? Um, it, it, it's difficult because it was so so powerfully and badly framed by... The falling outs. Mm. Uh, it's 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 difficult for for me to say. I mean, others might be able to do that because um, I I was finding it very hard to get the work to be in the industry long enough to notice any of that. I, yeah. I was yeah. I was you know literally careful about where I lived and and uh, things like that. So um, you know, but but I guess what I what I noticed was that the yeah the, the, I suppose the most obvious thing was. That a time of great technological change in the industry in the 70s and that mm. now, you know, that was obviously occurring in the 60s as well, but the, the way jobs went up um, began to change dramatically and uh, that the, the culture changed along with it. Um, the rules, the regulations on the job, no riding the hook, for instance, that was a fairly common thing when, you know, when I was a boy, I remember that still happening, but then bang, it shut down, and, and the things that were, were I suppose, getting in the way of um, the job going up were eliminated. Um, you know, if I, if I look at 
say, going into the 80s and the, the way the Homer, to keep the job safe, the, you know, the 24-hour Homer, um, the way that influenced eventually people uh, uh, establishing the OHS legislation in, in 84. It was just simply becoming too expensive for the boss to run the job um, if, if we were keeping it safe through homers. And so, with the union, they went to government with a, with a plan, a piece of legislation, and the OHS Act developed out of that. So, I saw some things that the unions had been pushing for for many years come to fruition. Um, but, uh, you know, both in the 70s and the 80s, then a lot of time was spent um, watching your back trying to sneak in here and there uh, to get work. And, yeah, that was hard. So for me, that, that ended up in working across a whole range of different industries, and that was a great thing. I scaffolded for a long time with the tramways board, uh, the old tramways board, and, and, you know, worked there for some time. 90, I think it was $90 a... I think, I think I pulled in around $91 a week back in the day. <laughs> Uh, uh, but yeah. So that leads me to a question. You say you don't quite remember because you weren't part of the industry on on the same basis that a lot of other people were. Are you a scaffolder? Mm. When did you get your scaffold ticket? Oh. And how did you get your scaffold ticket? So see, this is all these things were going on. Yeah. yeah. And it's when you actually focus on like a ticket yeah. to erect scaffold that puts a whole lot of things in focus, to my mind. Mm. Mm. So, uh, so when I was in, you could uh, they introduced the scaffold course yep. at the ta- at the the uh, the, uh, the Institute of Technologies, um, but but I came in just on the cusp of that where where you could. Where, where blokes had been doing it for a while, it would be what we call tick and flick today, I suppose, because they'd been around. So I wasn't in that category, so I had to go do my course. And um, that was, I think, for me at Swinburne, maybe. I think it was Swinburne. Yep, and who, and who taught the course? Oh, Ralph. Grey-headed bloke, always wore a suit with a tie, Mr Roberts. Oh, Ralph. Chief, Chief Scaffold Inspector for the DLI. Yeah, the DLI, Department yeah. of Labor and Industry. Oh, you've got an incredible memory. Well, yeah. Because so that's where I went. Yeah, right. <laughs> God's truth. Because yeah. it used to be in this sort of basement area mm. out, out at Swinburne and in Burwood, yeah. just in off Burwood Road and... Uh, Mr. Roberts used to conduct the course and he wanted to know what you'd done during the week. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to know everything about everything. Well, it, it, was a good, it was a good form of training, I reckon, because you're on the job with the blokes, with your elders, who knew everything about everything. And uh, do you remember that bloke? I can never remember his name, but he was an older bloke, Aussie, and he, he had this great sense of humour. I was working with him one day, and apparently he did this with everyone, but he'd get his scaffold key and he'd throw it up like that, you, you know, and you'd be up, God knows how, many stories, and he'd be doing that and catching it, doing that and catching it, because you're still getting the, the, used to working at height, you know, and you sort of go, <laughs> like this, and he used to laugh, and 
I can't remember his name, but, but anyway, working alongside some of the or Maddie, you know, Maddie the was, Maddie was uh, I think uh, I can't remember the country that Comrade came from, but working alongside those blokes and then going back in and doing your your, your course was yeah was the way a good way to learn. I think. Yep. Now another little piece of paper that uh, was issued at that time was. Portable sick leave. Uh, sorry, portable long service long service. Leave. Long service leave. Yes. What a struggle. And yep. and you know, like um, years and years and years of struggle for, for workers mm. to win that, for the union to win that. Um, and yeah, it was already in to to some extent it was already agreed under the Victorian Building Industry Agreement to actually move to portable industry long service leave. But then, in the end, the state government introduced the legislation mm-hmm. to give effect to it mm-hmm. because it was inevitable it was going to happen and uh, I think they preferred to have it under their control. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Um, and the permanency, that was the other thing. I mean, because initially all sides in the, in the political culture within the union had agreed on a number of policy things, except for limited tenure of office. That was a bridge too far. But, but, um, uh, but, uh, but permanency, that idea of uh, you know, 52 weeks work a year, effectively union hall hire, was accepted by both for some years. Hmm. And then when Normie intervened into New South Wales, he actually used the permanency monies as part of his... Inter- to, to cover the cost of his intervention. 60 armed men who went up... Um, scabbed, worked behind police lines um, and I found out, it was interesting I found out um, uh, uh, Boydie was, was telling me that uh, uh, if, if the advice from the old New South Wales branch had, a, had a waited 24 hours and not advised everyone to go into the federal branch because Normie had organised a break-in at the trades hall where the BLF office was, took all the files because back in those days they were cardboard, you know. Mm. Cardboard cards. Yeah, and and no-one could communicate with the members anymore. And so the the leadership advised, go into the new federal formation and we'll change it from within. 33 people were expelled for life and we had some people down here expelled, or Danny, Danny um, Purcell. And um, uh, but uh, uh, if they had waited 24 hours, normally the others had already agreed that they were going to leave. That the intervention hadn't worked. So it just shows timing never, is everything. Never give in. <laughs> never say. You know, keep fighting. But uh, anyway, yeah. So permanency didn't happen, and still doesn't exist. Mm. As such, but in terms of the work over the next 20 years, basically because unlike what had happened for generations, the boom and bust was actually levelled out by, one, population growth and two, government policy. And that has made a considerable difference. So let's just jump forward a long way to the last few years uh, before you retired, mm. in those years that were spent in the industry. Mm. How did you find that considerable jump from when you were regularly working in the industry 20, 
plus, well, nearly 30 years earlier. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, I, I um, with, with the advent of the deregistration in the 1980s, when that hit, um, I'd been hit by a car on the way to work. And I, so I was off for some time and whilst I was off and I could, once I got up off the floor and I could move around, I started volunteering in at the office. And then um, changes happened in the office, people left um, and I started working then full-time hours. So when in the 90s the call had come, right, uh, well, not, normally and I had had a falling out in the early 90s. Um, he was extremely paranoid by that time and he thought that I was organising against him and all that sort of stuff. So he sacked me. Um, he actually had uh, one of his organisers come over to the Trades Hall building where we'd set up after the raid in 1987. We set up an office in Trades Hall and uh, operated out of that office and he'd organised to have a, an organiser come over on a regular basis. He'd talk, he'd complain about Gallagher. I'd speak with him. Unbeknownst to me, he was taking notes... The Monday morning organisers meeting, this person takes out his thing. And says, on the 17th, of, uh, you said such and such and such. On the 23rd, you said so. And uh, uh, hard to believe, but you know, uh, Johnny Shetka was, was there at the time and come up. Anyway, I got the flick, um, went out, got work wherever I could because I'd tried to go around the industry and literally people laughed, like as, you, as you'd expect. Mm. You because I'd been on TV and all sorts of mm. things, speaking uh, and organising rallies. and um, So uh, uh, that's why I couldn't work in the industry until those last couple of years. Um, and uh, when um, Sean, Sean Reardon got me a start, and um, um, how I found it, well, uh, I, I guess I found that um, a lot of the younger ones, because... Rumours got around, and you know, little bits of film like mm. John Tognolini's thing on the BLFD registration, and people started hearing about that because I was there, and uh, and people had come in who knew me, and, uh, and then they'd tell their mates. Anyway, people started looking at that, and so they wanted to know the history. What what actually happened? How did that? Why why did that occur? So I found, um, uh, you know, I found that 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 was a, a an interesting thing that there were parts of history that weren't known about. Now, maybe there's. Maybe there's elements of that that are a good thing, um, uh, uh, but yeah, for, for me it was uh, it, it, it was different. And, and working for a small builder um, uh, who who had a unionised workforce, um, seeing all of the young ones come in who uh, were direct migrant workers again, Chinese and others, you know, um, um, Hazari. Seeing that mix, seeing that happen all over again, um, was it was interesting for me. Uh, yeah, I, but at the end of the day, although some of the technology was different, and, and and blokes that have their computer in the in the trailer outside in the in the combi van sort of thing outside, looking up how they should put the plaster on, and then going back in and doing it. I, uh, you know, that was... that's YouTube's a, a wonderful thing. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, now, how, how do those tiles go on again? Uh, no, you've put them around the wrong way, mate. But it, it's, uh, it, it's, the same, it's the same process, the same work, subject to the same um, pressures 
from employers and and you know all, all of that. I mean, so yeah, I, I saw changes, but I saw inherent inherent in the work is and the industry. You know, that's that's what shapes you and the union organisers going out of fighting about pretty much exactly the same stuff as they were in the 70s and the 80s. The industry might look a bit different around them and, and go up taller and higher and, you know, and as I say, technology different, which means different jobs, but at the end of the day, I think it's same old, same old. The nature of work doesn't change. Mm. What can change, and what we all hoped for back in those early days, for, for both of us, was that the price of labour would improve. So what you got for going to work was a number of things. One, permanency has never happened, but continuity has happened and... Therefore, the issue is, for most people, you sell your labour. How do you reckon the price of labour is now compared to where we were back, say, in 1974? If we spend on what we spent on in 1974, it'd be the same, if not better. But now, with capitalism in crisis, after Vietnam especially, and it started to introduce that neoliberal economics... We saw one of the one of the aspects of neoliberalism was that massive diversification of the market, more and more product, more and more variation within the products, leading to again more variation. And so, what we figure we need to buy now—that range of things we all purchase and things that you would have seen as science fiction back in the day, you know, like the mobile phones and the, all of that—what um, we spend on now is so much greater. Uh, are they needs? Mm. I don't think many of them are. Uh, they're certainly adding to the climate emergency, so we're going to need to reassess that. But I would say that in the, that process we, where we sell our labour for a wage, which always defined the, the industrial laws, didn't it? I mean, mm. because no-one else in the, in the capitalist market, apart from workers and organised labour, um, has that price determined for them. Uh, no-one else experiences it where they say, well, beyond a certain level, for you to try to go any higher is illegal. And if you try it, well, we'll, we'll use penalties against you. And everything from, you know, the, the industrial laws in the 60s and that right up through to the ABCC was all about us and our right to be treated as equal within the market. Um, I mean, we're the only ones in the market who whose opponents receive everything that we negotiate. You know, our competitors, that is non-union workers, mm. uh, receive everything that we do the fighting for, we negotiate. Um, that doesn't happen in a, someone making jumpers or cars. or You know what I mean? That would be illegal to try to force them to, 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 to do that. That would be called theft. So, uh, you know, I think uh, we've always been right about that, that... that the, the constant struggle for wages and conditions is the proof of class and it's the proof of class power because unless you're going to say that it comes down to everyone being equal, uh, everyone being free to live under a bridge, the fact is some people don't need to live under a bridge. They're in a house or, or they own many. Um, so that's what happens in our, our industry. It's always been there. It's in every industry. We, the product we sell, our work, our labour... Um, 
is governed by laws that do not apply to the employer. And if we tried to do the same, I'd go into that car yard and I'd say, mate, I'm not happy at the price. We, we insist that you drop that price. Well, if you persist, you'll be arrested and charged with you know, trespass or whatever. I mean, but in our, in our work, as working people, we're told, well, no, no, you can't make that decision about the cost of your labour uh, and the conditions of its sale. Mm. The, the conditions of its sale entirely determined by laws that don't apply to the employer. So, you know, that, that thing about the prices and incomes accord, it was, it was always going to be a... You know, it was never going to include the prices. It was always going to be about our incomes. So I think, I think that's, that's as true today as it was back then. Um, uh, uh, the extent to which workers understand that today, I think, is far less. That, that, that they don't see it as, as part of a bigger picture. It's not just, oh, look, I do a fair day's work and I want a fair day's recompense. This is about your right to determine the price and conditions of sale for what you sell, just like anyone else who has determines that within the marketplace. So you can't take the vast, the 90 percentile of people and call it democratic when you say they can't determine that price and those conditions of sale. Now, in terms of the price, that is determined by various processes. Do you think that the share of the surplus has shifted at all? I do. In terms of what people may not get in their their pay packets, but in terms of their overall conditions and so on, do you think there has been an improvement, whether that's steady or dramatic? It's, I'm, I'm interested in hearing what you think. But I put it to you that maybe the price of labour is, all, is always to the, to the uh, investor's uh, benefit, but has the price actually moved to the benefit of workers in some ways, whether by legislation industrial agreement or whatever? No, no, I don't think so objectively. I don't think so. I think that, well, I think it's demonstrable for those who write the studies about this stuff that a bigger share of the surplus of the wealth that's created by workers now goes to, um, to, to the corporate sector than to the, the workers who make the wealth. Um, I think the other thing to look at is... The, the, how that fits into the global picture um, because of course the big myth of neoliberalism was that we're lifting people out of poverty and yes there are there are some millions who've you know lifted out of poverty and right up even into the middle class across the globe but if you look at countries like India the exploitation on um, on working class people and peasantry has actually intensified and then, of course, there's also the, the climate emergency part of that, that, that as they've looked for greater markets, as they've built on more arable land, as they've gone deeper and further out into the oceans to get fossil fuels, we've seen the intensification of the, the climate emergency. Um, so uh, uh, factoring that into the cost of goods... I think means that we can do far less with the dollar that we do get than what people could do, say, in the in the 70s, in, in my opinion. And that, that 
I mean, I guess we, we need now to be reshaping. I'm not suggesting for a moment that we don't always try to organise the best EBA that we can, but I think EBAism has led to um, a, uh, a, a, a diminution of our, of our rights, um, our right to organise, um, to, to get a proper compensation for, for the labour we sell, um, I think the climate emergency is, is, is worsening our, our, the position of ordinary working people in that because everything is costing so much more and, and, and we now know that that's going to that's gonna be risen to the power of 10, unfortunately, for our kids and our grandkids. So I, I think um, moving beyond uh, uh, the, the, the constraints of an EBA into a world where we can factor in the cost of... Um, of, of the climate emergency and pollution is a new sort of unionism that, that the younger ones are going to have to... They're going, some way or other, they're going to have to deal with this. Now, I mean, I've got my views on it, but I'm not going to be piggy in the middle. I mean, I'll slip off the perch fairly soon. So, so it obviously, won't be our generations who... But we've got to be thinking about it, and I think talking about it, because one of the things about the Green Bands, what made it so in advance of its time and our union, both in New South Wales and Victoria, were, were the prime movers in, in the Green Bands. Um, uh, Fedfor and others were involved. Um, but Well, to be fair, Fedfor would say they put the first Green Band on in Kelly's Bush. And well, Sydney. they would. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and that's a fair comment on their part. Oh, absolutely. Jack Camborn and, and his crew were amazing. And, and uh, Bobby Pringle, who, um, you know, good left Labor uh, uh, leader... Um, uh, uh, but that that thing, that thing that um, which was looking at, I mean, the question of did we have a democratic right to determine not only the price and conditions of sale for our labour, but what our labour did and whether it did it, and and if not that, what would it do? Um, these were alive questions. They were being fought out on the job, and the union was taking that right. Um, it's still not determined to this day, of course. I mean, that would still be in a live debate if we went downtown now with a few thousand people and we talked about, OK, we're going to ban this, but we're going to do that instead. Um, and, 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 and that whole uh, ethic of, of looking at that, that, um, that, that trajectory of democracy and, and um, e- economics towards each other uh, over the millennia... Uh, I think the Green Bands captured that and, um, you know, that was an important thing to happen. I think it's a, it's a wonderful part of our history that we need to make sure our young understand. And, um, yeah, so... And I think in terms of the climate emergency, what it was doing back then in the 70s is absolutely central if we are to see significant sections of humankind survive. Righto. You are listening to Creatures of the Industry on Community Radio 3CR. Righto. Now, we've had a chat about change in the industry. Can I put another proposition to you and see how you respond? The EBA system uh, took over at the behest of the Keating government and uh, we had to negotiate and the idea was to give away things to increase productivity but you got more money. Uh, 
really I would have thought that compared to a lot of industries, our industry gave away very, very little for more money. But anyway, that's a view I'm interested in hearing from you. The other thing is, did the EBAs actually create a better safety net compared to the award system and compared to various other forms of negotiation around the world in that uh, things that were beyond the uh, minds of a lot of people back in the 70s, did we actually create in the last 20 to 25 years a safety net which actually for unionised EBA workers has actually brought a real benefit, forget about the money at this point, but is there, in fact, some protections there that we didn't have before? And two, put another view to you, and this is going to give you a bit of a few options for response. By pushing up the rate in a boom, that also pushes up the rate for non-unionised people and actually helps the unionised people because the non-union ain't as cheap as it used to be. Mm. So there's a few things there for you to mull over and uh, mm. respond on. Yeah, I... I um, yeah, I, I guess f- f- for me, uh, there's a direct line between the EBA and EBAism and 45 D&E. That 45 D&E 1977, the secondary boycott laws... Um, it was preceded by 1973 coup in Chile where Pinochet was the first one to roll out with American support neoliberal agenda. So privatisation, casualisation, um, some offshoring, but certainly 45 DNE, secondary boycott laws. So where you, if you hit a second, third or fourth employer, then that is not on. It's illegal. Um, every picket line you've ever been on, your trucks will line up, the photos are taken, off to court, injunction on the union, etc. So... Uh, that process of outlawing solidarity within and between unions, which is really the f- the function of unions, that's that's who we are and it's what we do and it's how we win. Um, so to then take that process of the diminution of solidarity and, and criminalising it, going right through to the EBA, which then said, well, you can only show solidarity within the confines of the enterprise. Um, uh, so f- for me, that, that's the main thing about EBAs and EBAism. Did unions, on the other hand, then work very cannily, work out ways to, um, as you say, lay down new benchmarks? Um, yes, I think, depending on the industry and the union, that we've seen some of that happen. And and it just shows you the incredible um, creativity out there <laughs> once you get organisers experiencing certain things and then going through and, and, and starting to realise, oh, OK, there's a, there's, a, there's a gap there and we can, we can fill that gap and better our, the, the, the conditions of our members. Um, I think that process has gone on. I, I think overall um, that, yeah, we, we need to... We need to readdress the whole question of the process of the, the shrinking of solidarity, the, the constraining of solidarity over, over decades uh, and the effect that that has had. And, and I think it gets back to the de I mean, unless we are to believe that 
deregistration, not so much in the 1970s, but because that was about, I think, yeah, the green bands and and and, um, and and eliminating them because $3,000 million worth of building materials were tied up in green bands. But I'm talking more about the 80s when when that that process of um, of of uh, you know the, the, the shrinking of the legal right to show solidarity um, that I think that that's that's now created that harsh reality that in the private sector we're I think now under under ten percent density you know unions that is in terms of our, our memberships so you know I, I think we, we need to go back not only here but globally and, and if we're going to win it'll, it has to be global and and, re- and continue to address and readdress because I don't think unions ever stop doing this uh, the question of our rights to function equal to the employer that that um, you know I'm not talking about the the, the, the establishment of, um, of of new societies where you know uh, where they're subject to to states telling people how to behave and how to think and I'm talking about within a democracy we have to we have to begin to finally deal with this 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 question of our democratic rights as workers to to look at um, the, the cost the conditions of sale for our labor but also the question of what our labor does and and how it does it because we will not deal with the climate emergency if we're limited to EBAs that cannot put into the agreements the things we need if we're to survive. We legally can't do it. So, I mean, you know, we can, we can get a bit of procurement, stuff like that happening, and that's important at the moment if we can procure locally and procure organic and all the things we need to be doing. But the harsh reality is we've got to organise agreements that that will force employers to put their shoulders to the wheel to deal with climate emergency. Now, within an EBA, that's just science fiction. You, you couldn't do it. So we, we've got to, whether we like it or not, we're being forced to, you know, address this thing, as people were around the issue of the green bans. People, people had arguments about, what are we banning the development of the Windsor for? We couldn't get a beer in there, you know what I mean? Like, not in the day. So what, what, are, you, what are we doing, you know? Like, well, you could get a beer, but they wouldn't let you hire the hall or anything. I mean, you know, banks in, in Melbourne, beautiful. Thank goodness we saved them. But, but there were big blues about what the hell are we doing? Why, do we, why, are, we, why are we concerned about that? Well, you know, well, Parklands was more obvious. Um, and that first green ban that, that happened there where the kids used to play in that Princess Park area, you know, that goes from Princess Park down to Clifton Hill. Um, the old rail alignment. The old rail, yeah, the circle, uh, rail circle, yeah, yep. yeah. And... Um, uh, uh, Gallagher-Hardy Park. The Gallagher-Hardy Park, and he did, what, 13, 14 days? Mick Lewis did seven days, uh, bless him, over that, over that blue. But what was at stake? What was, did we have the right to do that? Well, we would argue yes. We think the people would support us in that. The vast majority of people did, and I think would again. And I think if... When we start taking action around climate, now it can't just be banning things, stopping this, stopping that, as some of our, our Greens brothers and sisters might suggest. That's a no, and there are some things we've got to say outright no to. It seems to me, otherwise our kids have got no future. But it's the yes. What are we saying yes to, and how are we going to bring that yes about? So they're the things now. Whether it's the offshore wind farm in Gippsland, you know, Star of the South, 
or, or, or whatever the issue around climate, we've got to lead from the front on that, and I think we can, as, as we did during, during the Green Bands. And I think the other thing about the Green Bands was the link between the Green Bands and 45 d It was a big driver on Fraser and the others, you know, to not just get rid of the New South Wales branch because they were the, the main driving force there, but, but that alliance between working people and environment movement was incredibly powerful, and they broke it through that way. And what flowed, what was pushed quicker than it might not have been otherwise was 45 DNA, and Hawke's role in that happening I think is, is there to be seen, you know privately meeting with Fraser a massive ACTU response that he did that, special congress was held over it, all that history is important to us because we've seen for decades now in terms of a possible union responses to climate emergency we've seen very very similar things Unions confused about fossil fuel because we cover fossil fuel workers. Well, getting involved in the organisation and the planning of the new industries and the new jobs is something that we've sort of got to be involved in. And I think our movement overall, without being critical of individuals in it, because that's not irrelevant, but it's not the most relevant set of facts, um, we've, we've got to be involved. This is about our future as unions but as a nation. Um, and I think only unions can do this. Capital can't do it. Now, put it to you that if you do the basics as a union, you look after people's wages and conditions, their health and safety, their training and all those other aspects of union activity. And yes, I wouldn't argue about the fact that unions are not got as much power as uh, perhaps our right-wing mates would like to suggest... But if you do the basics and you look after the members, they'll give you a bit of licence to do other stuff. Yeah, yeah. And is that perhaps what happened in the 70s and then was turned on its head in the 80s with the Accord? Yes, I, I, I think that's correct. I think it is a correct assessment and I think it's demonstrable mm. um, um, because uh, uh, when... One of the things about the Accords was it shut down the capa- any capacity for the community to interact with unions. It, it, you know, the, the Accords, the, the, the privatisations, the casualisation, the, the offshoring of jobs created a, a milieu within which unions had to um, uh, work 24-7, you know, just to be able to take care at, at our best just to be able to take care of the wages and conditions of our members. Some unions went out, gone, like feet first pretty much, and the amalgamations kept them alive in some shape or form. But, but, I, but I, think, I think, yes, that there was a... From, from 83 onwards, um, when the Hawke-Keating government came to power, um, we saw, didn't we, we saw the relieving workers go... I remember being at meetings where there would be, where there were state and federal union uh, uh, Labor Party uh, ministers, hand on heart, saying this casualisation will only affect relieving workers, because as we prepare for the privatisations, we cannot afford any longer to be paying relievers, so we'll bring casuals in, but it'll never go anywhere else. And now, 44% of our youth are working casual, so. How do you look after the wages and conditions of someone casual? 
I, I remember on the Friday nights we'd go out and, and we'd shut down the Australia Post, the big thing out there in um, Dandenong. You know, it's the, every letter in Victoria goes through that place, and so shutting them down was not only a joy and a pleasure, but but easy because it was only the one entrance and exit. Um, but but the, the 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 thing about that was that every worker who was trying to get in was was casual, and you know usually Vietnamese Australian, and, um, and if they spoke to us on the way in, they were sacked. So when when that when the accords and the privatisation everything got rolled out, it, it again it, it it stripped down the capacity of unions to be able to look after the people who were classed as casual and. And, and, and so forth. And because they were now working in an industry that wasn't pro, uh, publicly owned, it was now privatised. Well, well, look at coal, you know. I mean, why have we had these decades of struggle between our unions in the fossil fuel industry and employers and the community? It was because, well, all of a sudden, someone, Kenneth, turned the SECV into a privatised entity which saw every other means of producing power as an enemy. And so we got it. we've had this debate across all of these years, when the SECV had on the drawing board solar, wind and water. They were ready to go. So, so you know, I, I think those changes in capitalism obviously led to a, a, a less and less of an ability to look after workers who used to be in the big public enterprises, and then that acted as a, a negative weight on, an, on the rest of the economy and the, our union movement. And, and I think it, it's just a miracle that our unions have been able to hold on, set the barricades up and and, and try now we've got to stop it at around 10% and build back, build back up. But but I guess until we can address those issues of casualisation and... Now, our industry arguably has always been casual. I mean... Daily hire. Yeah. So, so what was the difference between that casual and a kid in... In, in a, or not so much a coffee shop because there is a real difference there, but in, but in other industries that are casual, well, it's the union ticket. And we said, BLF and others, we've said traditionally, we don't care what the boss calls you. If you're in the union and you've got that ticket, we're going to look after you. And if you're gone down the road, we want to know why. At our best, and I'm not saying there hasn't been troubles around unionisation of the migrant workers, say, in tiling and... and um, and plastering and so forth, you know, and those horrible things where they get paid and the next day they're bringing the money back and giving it a backhand to the boss if they want to keep the job. All those things are there, yes, but, but, um, you know... Not new. Not not new, not new, and casual, again, not new. Industry, whole industries like ours were always that way. That, that, that I guess the thing is that sooner or later we've got a choice. Either we step out over that legal line... Uh, and deal with it, or or we don't, and we'll keep we'll keep stepping up with our hands around our head in the corner. Now, just thinking ahead to what is in front of the Australian people and the Australian government today, there is maybe maybe this is just a reflection of simple scientific fact. Law of physics, action, reaction, action, reaction. Are we, in your mind, getting the reaction to neoliberal economics and all the bullshit that went on for the last 35 years? Is the government 
in Canberra starting to reflect the need to address issues, not just the climate, but casualisation, the right of workers to negotiate and so on? Or is this just an amelioration of the excesses? Here we go. Yeah. It's a big question, isn't it? Yeah, it is a big question. For everybody. It is a big question. And, and, and the answer to the question would be, would, would depend upon your willingness to subscribe negative parts of the world we live in to individuals and if only we could replace that one with this one, it would all be fixed or you have a more systemic view of it. I, I, I've tried to live according to the latter. Um, I think we've got a lot of well-meaning people in our working-class family, our labour movement family. Uh, sometimes best if we stay off the piss at Christmas. But basically we are family and we've sort of got to look at the ways how can one part of that family always assist the other part who might be further in the tent than we are. Or if if you're in the tent and you've got marginal people willing to, you know, work for the good, how do we, how do we network and, and work better together? Because... I, I think there's a, a really there is a lot of. Um, I mean, I've been surprised at at people who are ostensibly say on the right of the Labor Party, but have been really pushing a, a good position on casualisation and saying, well, if it is casual, let's be very clear that it's actually casual and not that the normal scam that we see happening every day of the week and that's been going on for a few decades. So. Uh, I've been pleasantly surprised about that, uh, and it's reminded me that, that it's rarely a case that people are, are, are bastards and don't want to do the good. It's more that we have different ways of or different approaches to what we see as realistic at any one time, and therefore how much good we can actually do. Um, some will take a longer view of it, but but to the substantive issues around the neoliberal um, around neoliberal economics. I think we need to be, in the broad, counterposing um, a more democratic economics. And I, and I think unions have always been the voice of democracy within the economy against people like Howard, who were as ideologically committed as, say, you and I, uh, who said the economy is not a democracy. But I think historically, if you look back, you know, whether it's the suffrage or whatever, you saw the early union movement engaged socially right from the start... Um, and, and therefore dealing with the ways in which work, its price, the conditions of its sale and rights to apply it, um, the way in which that has happened across time. And, and I think more and more we have to be looking at the ways, if we're to survive the climate emergency in any fit state, at least sections of humanity, that, then, then we need to be looking at that question, what does a... Uh, a democratic economics look like. I think the green bands give us some answers to that, that um, uh, but they're difficult questions to get, you know, that, 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 that will supply you the answers. Um, but I think, to, to start with, uh, one, one is super. I think we've got to look at... I mean, super is socialised capital. It's, it's, it's not um, as, you know, Howard and Abbott and all the others... Um, describe it as private capital it's it's actually our our capital that we earn and we pay into accounts um, but primarily it's used to facilitate investment in private sector you know enterprises um, I, I think and that's fine 
if we can get work for our members and if we can then green those jobs up over time as we learn more, that that's, that's not a bad thing. But I think we've also got to go and look at going beyond merely the, the capitalist market because if a capitalist company sets up a wind farm and sets up a solar farm down the road, they're in competition with each other. We're not going to compete our way out of the climate emergency. We've got to plan our way out of it. Now, capitalism can't plan, not in that long-term dis- and not across companies uh, because they're, they're constantly in competition. So, so to get our, our socialised capital into good social things, the big infrastructure projects, like our union, I think, played a role in getting Seabus into uh, the offshore wind farm in Gippsland because it was only a Scandinavian super fund initially. And I think our union agitated and eventually CBUS took 10%. That's it. That's, to me, that is a revolutionary act. And we need to be on the rooftops more screaming about that and saying, this is, we want, this is what we want for our super, that it actually can begin to, to meet our needs for housing and those sort of things now, whilst also returning on the investment. So if we can offer a good 10% return on investments in super into green projects that our members own and control, I think that's the next step. That's the modern green ban. And it's also a way of us, us saying, well, OK, we're going to diversify the economy, which now liberalism always says it wants to do, but actually doesn't mean, so that we've got a public, a private, and then a social sector. And the social sector is a more democratic one that can set the pace as these years of the climate emergency deepen. Well, that just caused a little thought to pop into my mind that of all the issues that uh, we've covered in this conversation, Palestine, Israel, has has a connection here. It always seems to be two sides of the coin. But in Israel, or what the Israelis call Israel, Mm. there is actually three different levels. There there is a cooperative social level where unions and communities actually have enterprises and activities which are socially owned. And this is one of the, the great contradictions of our industry, of our world that... Think about it for just one second. The same time unionism was developing in this country and undertaking great struggles and all the rest of it, they supported white Australia. Yes, exactly. exactly. These contradictions are always there, but they have to be resolved. You're right. And the issue of our money, not just the money in the super, but also in the redundancy, Mm -hmm. the long service leave, they are all payments that were instead of wage increases. The last EBA in Victoria had a good outcome on wages, but it had an even better outcome in the long term on redundancy because the redundancy was more than doubled over the the journey of that, uh, that enterprise agreement. So it meant that There was a safety net for people, but it also meant that there was money then which can be put to good use. Yes. And it has been over the generations uh, since Inkalink was set up, there has been 
money put into training for the next generation. There's been money put into occupational health and safety for this generation as well as the next generation and so on. All these social funds are definitely there and perhaps what you're talking about isn't all that hard to achieve given the amount of money that is out there. I think you're right, and if you're looking at the definition of social movement unionism, it's not just um, things like the green bands, which you know, are more out there, radical, mm. attention-grabbing thing. It is the, the, the things you're talking about. It's it's that. I mean, look at IncoLink. Look at look at what it's it's provided. All of the training, all of the support to families, all of the you know the ongoing. Um, uh, payments to people so they can survive, get back up on their feet and survive. Um, voluntary assisted dying, I'm wanting to talk to how you more about, about getting more involved in that space so that we find out more and we can support the process, having just gone through it personally with someone. So um, that, that's all social movement unionism. It's never stopped. Um, we tend not to talk about it that way, though, which then is a shame because it's a way of capturing the imagination of the young about... You know, we want to address the, the bigger questions in the bigger world, um, and we've always have. But we want you to know about that. Um, uh, going back to the, the 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 other thing is, it's I suppose learning more about other models around the world. One of the things that Earthworker Cooperative, which came out of the Green Bands, studied was Mondragon in the Basque countries near Spain. Now that that's been going. Um, since, well, 1942, the school was set up. The first graduates out of that in 1951 set up the first co-op. They're around about 120 co-ops now. Um, Very well aware because Orbea is a cooperative that make bikes. Yes. So yeah. Absolutely front and centre to uh, me. Sure, absolutely, yeah. Well, and, and aren't they good? But uh, so I, I think, I, yeah, look, I, I think what... When we look at the question of climate emergency, and we've got to look at what are the economics of it, um, because I don't think there is such a thing as a, a, a crisis in climate or environment or pollution. I think there is a there is a, a crisis in the way we organise to meet our needs, the economy, and we've got to do that economics differently if we want to get different outcomes. So I think that 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 then creates a space that unions are in that really no one else is in. As a social movement, we're it, and that's that question of, yeah, the 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 social use of our labour, um, and how do we set up the structures within which people can make the right choices socially, politically, and economically? And and I think that's that's where we are. I think there are great opportunities for our movement out of this crisis, but um, it's just it's just getting. I mean, we've got a union movement that's been under attack and under assault for so many decades. Um, it, how on earth does an organiser come off working you know, all of those hours uh, under stress, never knowing when it's going to go to code red on him and he'll be in a blue and punching on with someone to a situation where they're going to be able to work out about the questions you and I are talking about now. And so I guess it's, it's a process, it's time. We're not used to thinking this way, but I think that's what is coming and that's what the young ones will, will be able to organise around and, and hopefully organised from the, from the front. Well, we, we are as a movement probably, including in this industry that we love so much, we are a bit punch drunk and I put it to you that perhaps we have as a consequence of just 
basically doing Muhammad Ali up against the ropes in the Congo, just taking all the blows, and now we've got a counter-punch. Yeah. And the problem is when you're a bit punch drunk, you're not looking back at what you've done before because there is nothing new in unions doing things which are a social benefit using social capital. Just a couple of things. The Painters Union, as it then was, set up a couple of uh, activities in Victoria which were aimed at giving people a holiday. And they they have since been sold to pay for uh, the fines that the ABCC and the Howard and Abbott governments and unfortunately to some extent the uh, Gillard and Rudd governments cost us. Um, There were a number of ventures even in the BWIU, not not necessarily my favourite people given the histories, but they did things where money was actually given to members for housing and for holidays. Yep. So painters, BWIU and unions, including some Victorian unions, setting up the Canberra Raiders uh, club where, well, it's not the Canberra Raiders club, but they're the chief beneficiaries, I should say, but they set up a working person's club, unfortunately, based on pokies and so on, but there was capital generated which has been used for the benefit of the community and having their favourite sport in the Canberra Raiders set up in Canberra. So all these things people don't remember. Hmm. And one of the things about this podcast, I think probably blowing the trumpet a bit too loud, but part of it is to give people history to be able to go, okay, we've been here before, what did we do? And where can we go? And I just think that all these conversations we've had have all added to that. Yes. And hopefully there'll be some people listening to this podcast who are going to have a bit of a think and maybe independently have a look back at what has occurred. Because I'm sure that I don't know everything, and I'm sure that the pair of us don't know everything uh, about what's happened in the past, because there's been plenty happened in the past, and those lessons, to my mind, are a cheap way to learn. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, look, I I think that's right. And and, and I guess, you know, uh, I mean, if I look at um, uh, the, the, the question, too, of... Of, of time in relation to time and energy in relation to the campaigns we're in well I know that because I've lived through it that 25 years we've been talking about Earthworker now mm-hmm. um, so what's happened in that time why did it take so long and what are the central questions around economic democracy and all that co-ops and you know and so you're you're approaching people who've in the corner with their hands around their head, every now and again throwing one or two, but basically they're under attack and you're asking them to think about co-ops and climate emergency and, you know, and, and they might love you, but they think, oh, Dave, for Christ's sake, fuck off, will you? Like, <laughs> you know? And you can see it in their eyes and you think, oh, God, you're a good man. But, but what have we achieved? Well, OK, the factory in Morwell, 
it's finally on its feet. It's only a couple of mil it's turning over, but that's better than where we were a year ago, right? Um, big battery. We've nearly finished a big battery in Gippsland. Um, sodium nickel chloride, no lithium, so it's not going to explode on you if there's a flood or a fire. Um, you mean the, all, salt. Yes, sodium. <laughs> that's right. It's salt. Can you you can make salt. a battery with salt. Well, and we can go to the diesel plant and get all the salt we know. But, but anyway, and more and more. I mean, this partnership we're doing with the Hong Kong mob, they do the big batteries for the cranes. Mm. Right? So they want us to be shovel-ready by middle of next year. So the fact that this has now been adopted by the Victorian Trades All Council, it's, it's a union project, people like me are now in a sense, out of it, just supporting from behind and the young ones coming in. As our delegates, especially the younger ones, as they, as they become more aware of this and more involved and start to lead it, I, I, I think there is, there is a real opportunity there to, to look at, a, within a mixed economy, a, a, a sector that deals with the climate emergency, part of which is housing, because now we've got the housing cooperative you know, going, Earthworker Labor, um, and we can do that differently. We can work it differently, own it differently, so it's distributed ownership, and we can make sure young union families to start with are in homes, the ones with kids especially. So this sort of stuff we can do. There's no employer involved. The state can partner with us if it wants. Private sector can come in too and partner on, on particular terms. But this this is the modern version of the Green Band. It's saying, well... We will determine the questions of our labour, how it's used and all of those things. And, and I think it sort of doesn't get much better than that and it can really only come out of crisis, I suppose, that you get driven into those new ways of, of, of doing things. So, I mean, I'm hopeful in, in that sense um, and, 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 and I, I do see slowly but surely that the shift has, is coming. Uh, now, whether we're going to do it quick enough, I don't know. Arguably some of the science is pretty dark now, but... My view is if it's a crisis, you just keep punching on until the crisis is over, uh, or you are. <laughs> or you're the owner of Amazon and you're planning to get on a spaceship and go and live on some <laughs> other solar system. <laughs> ah, capitalism always finds a way. Yeah. Now, just to summarise, from the day you came into this industry till the day you retired and all the bits in between. What do you think, this is on the basis of always looking up, Mm. always having hope, Mm. what do you reckon were the people, the incidents, the issues, the victories that are most significant in your journey? Mm. Um, That's putting that on you, I know, but... Yeah, well, no... There will be things that pop straight to mind, I would have thought. Yeah, well, definitely. And and, uh, uh, whichever side people took on whichever issue, it's just been uh, the tremendous energy of people who want to do union. Um, You know, and and as I say, I can't remember names. I can half remember faces. But, But I'll never forget that that sense of these people who want to do union, who will stand by you, uh, who will, you know, give a big fuck you to the boss when that's called for, who will stand and hold the line, um, and so many incidences of it. So, and to do that, again, to do that in areas of life that ostensibly don't have anything to do with us or our work or, 
you know what I mean? Like to see people go out and put everything on the line on behalf of others, where the where where the strong defend the weak, and and that, that making a choice to live that way, where we defend the weak, and and um, uh, yeah, that. So whether it's green bands, whether it's the the two D registrations, and especially that second one where I, I was a bit older and we all were, and we all I think learnt a bit more out of that, um, and running into people like John Cummins and 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 you know and others and, and Gallagher and Mundy and I think we've we're a privileged generation to that extent. And if we can look past our differences to the things that united us, I think we'll find, as they always say, you know, there are many, many more things that unite us than divide us. And and so I think it's looking for that ground that we can call common ground and we can own and defend that and then build a base and from that base build out and create many, many more. And I, I think union is the only way to do that. Um, I, I think there's no better way to live our lives. And I guess now... We, as we get that out there in the, into the hands of the young, and then uh, I, I'm, I'm hopeful for a, for a, a positive future that that, that is going to be looking at a very very ch- changed planet because some things now it's too late we're simply not going to churn them around, and we don't know the full consequences yet but we do know that hundreds of millions are going to be without water that's going to happen it's locked in already, but that whatever is left in the pockets of humankind that do survive, that I'm confident they can live better and together. Uh, so, And that unions are going to play a massive role in that. And hopefully live a bit smarter. Yes, hopefully. Dave Kerrin, thank you very, very much for your contribution to Creatures of the Industry. Thank you, Ralph. And it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, for all the listeners... Think it over. (laughs) Look back, learn some lessons and go forward looking up. Thank you very much, Dave Kerrin. You have been listening to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews about the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. In Greece, in Spain, or Ireland, in England, or Fiji, we all of us are workers united, we must stand until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land. We faced deregistration, it backfired in the face. We're not fooled by arbitration, we won't stay in our place. We hit the bosses hard and fast to win and keep our gains And break a couple of concrete pours to back our lug of claims So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed Our builders' labour is a name to make a man feel